If you haven't already, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10, the passage that we just heard read this morning as we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts called Witnesses, a study in the book of Acts where we see the way that God is bearing witness first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth as the gospel is brought to the Gentiles. This witness is a witness to the life, death, resurrection, that gospel of Jesus Christ that we also get to be witnesses of this morning. Now, the mystery that we just heard is a mystery unfolding, and this is the way that the scriptures speak of it. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Friends, this is an unfolding of a reality that, that had been hinted at, that had promises regarding all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and then Genesis chapter 11 and throughout the Exodus and throughout the prophets and throughout the Psalms of an ingathering of a people from among the nations. But now we see it unfolding before our eyes. It's through what Ephesians calls the unsearchable riches of Christ that God has made shine all the brighter, the glories of his, what Ephesians calls manifold wisdom, that he has made a people for himself out from among all the peoples of the earth. Friends, that is an impossible task. Even just in human terms, to, to create a people from out from among the people, we are divisive and divided people. But God, in his manifold wisdom, is making not a collection of a bunch of people. He is making one people, his people. So the breadth of his redemption becomes the breadth of all of his creation. All this is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. And we see it being realized, made real, being applied right before us in our passage this morning. This passage is the beginning of the application of redemption. And it's the beginning of the application of the redemption to the very first Gentile believer. So the application, I think, for us is clear. It's twofold. We'll get to it as we make our way through this passage not only that we would believe, there is a call in this passage that we would believe the gospel that is preached, but that we would also join the church of the ages, that church of, of Acts chapter 11, to whom the report about this conversion takes place, that we would join the church of the ages in rejoicing at the manifold wisdom of God and the unsearchable riches of his grace. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to search the unsearchable. And we're going to find things. We're going to find that it's, it's manifold. There are many sides to the wisdom of God, but we are going to look at just a few this morning. And the result must be belief and praise. Now, what I'm going to do this morning, I know we had the scripture read for us. I hope that you are following along with us, but I'm going to recap again to just call to our mind this lengthy passage, what takes place here. Let's go back to the beginning. At the beginning of chapter 10, we see that God sends an angel to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He's of the Italian cohort and a God-fearing man. 
And the angel explains to Cornelius that he must send to a man named Simon, Peter, who is staying with a man named Simon the Tanner in Joppa. Now Cornelius does exactly as the angel has commanded him, and he sends three men to Joppa to go and get Peter. In the meantime, as those men are traveling, Peter goes up on a roof when they were... Where they were staying, he goes up on that roof at about noon, and he has a vision. In the vision, Peter sees many kinds of animals. And those many kinds of animals are those that are permitted and prohibited for the Jewish people to eat. All of these animals coming down, these animals are that are prohibited to be eaten are considered common or unclean. And to Eat them is to yourself become unclean. And a voice in the vision tells Peter, kill and eat. Peter is very reluctant, but the voice tells him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And you can see Peter scratching his head as this happens three times. There seems to be something that God is telling him that he has not heard in this way before. Now, Peter might have been tempted to think that the vision was all about the afternoon's dinner menu. We're actually told at the beginning of that story that when he went up uh, about noon, he was hungry when he had this vision. All right, I dream of animals descending from heaven all the time when I get hungry, you know. But he understands that this is not a story about food at the end of the day. The appearance of three men sent by a Roman centurion gives Peter a huge hint about what God is doing in this vision. The next day, Peter and some of the disciples from Joppa, they went to Cornelius in Caesarea. They make that journey and they go to visit at a Gentile's home. When Peter gets to Caesarea, he's quick to remind Cornelius that it's actually unlawful for him to even be visiting Cornelius. And therefore, Cornelius, who is a Gentile, is by extension also unclean, common. And to associate with him is to yourself become unclean, unfit for the worship of the Lord. But now, as he goes to visit Cornelius, he begins to understand that God is showing him not just something about animals, but that he should not call any person common or unclean. Cornelius asks Peter to teach him according to what the Lord has shown. Essentially, it's like getting an invitation to say, why don't you come to my house and preach the gospel to me? All right? I've had that happen like roughly zero times in my life. That someone has sent for me and said, hey, I would like you to come to my house and preach the gospel to me. And that's what happens to Peter. He's like, something must be going on here. All right? And he's right. Now Peter gets to the heart of the matter. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. I would encourage you to underline that passage in the text. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the whole point of the episode. God is showing Peter and the whole church that he is redeeming and calling to himself a holy people from among every tribe, tongue, and nation. Peter goes on to preach a powerfully clear gospel message. He speaks of God who anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus who did good and healed many. Jesus who was put to death on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. There are many witnesses to that resurrection. 
Jesus is the one whom God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. And everyone who receives in him forgiveness through his name. The Spirit fell on all who heard that gospel message that day in that household of Cornelius. This happened to Gentiles. Don't miss that. Peter suggests that Gentile believers should be baptized. Don't miss that. And he makes that suggestion because it's clear that they have been redeemed in the same way that the Jews who first received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost were redeemed. Peter then goes back to Jerusalem, gives a detailed account of what happened from the vision in Joppa to the gospel proclamation in Caesarea to the Holy Spirit's giving evidence of salvation among the Gentiles. And all who heard Peter's account agreed that even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And what do they do? They rejoice. That's what they do. I want to take a moment to pray. I want to pray for understanding and that God would work in our hearts in a very similar way. Lord, we thank you for this incredible account, this telling, as you often do, this, this unfolding of the fruit of the gospel's proclamation in history. But I pray that you would work among us today, that the gospel would be proclaimed. You would make yourself known and clear here. Lord, that you would save by means of your spirit. Lord, that we would remove every barrier that we would try to establish and agree with you, Lord, that you have already removed every barrier to salvation for all who would believe. So, Lord, we pray that you would work belief in us. It's needed for everyone, for the one who has first heard to the one who has heard many times. We all need to believe, and if we would believe, we would rejoice. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to walk through this passage, and it's really three episodes, but we're going to look at four things that take place during the course of these sort of three episodes that are in this passage. The first thing that we see is the Gentiles are clean. Gentiles are clean. This is God's vision. God's vision is that he would make a people who are not holy, holy. That's God's vision. That's his purpose. That's God's plan. And we know this because God gives that vision to two people, right? The visions of Cornelius and the vision of Peter are actually God's vision for his church. Cornelius' vision. Let's look at it for a moment. In verse 2, we're told Cornelius is a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, to, to the people, and prayed continually to God. This was an interesting guy. He evidently had heard something about God. It's a beautiful thing that God hears Cornelius. You see, Cornelius does not know how to come to God. He had not been tutored over the centuries as the Jewish people had about how to approach the Lord. He cannot participate in the ritual cleansings. He cannot participate in the sacrificial system. He's not part of the chosen people of God. Cornelius has nothing to commend himself to God. And yet, God hears his prayers going on there. 
we begin to see a reality that appears in this passage, that salvation is not something to which we commend ourselves at all. See, that's, a, that's our default disposition, to believe that there is some religious practice or ordinance or knowledge that by which we become commended to God, then God responds to our commendation, and we are saved by His grace that we prompted. Right? With the Jews were privileged. It's true. The Scriptures bear witness to this over and over again. They were privileged because they had the law of God. And they had the promise of the presence of God in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And a promise that one day God would make his dwelling their hearts. But God is explicit that there is nothing about the Jewish people themselves that made him choose them. There's nothing inherently commendable about the Jewish people. More than that. Because they had the law, their sin was all the more heinous. The law only serves to condemn those who fall under the weight of its yoke. In the end, the greatest lesson that we learn from the law is not something that commends us to God. What we learn, if you look closely at the law of God, what you learn is that God is holy. His character is absolute perfection. And this is what he demands of anyone who would approach him. What we learn if we look at the law of God is we learn that the Lord is holy and we are not. So listen, it is a beautiful thing that God hears Cornelius's prayer. And it's a beautiful thing, a work of grace and mercy that God has heard any of our cries or caused our cries to rise to him at all. This is the work of God's grace and mercy. Now, one note that I want to clear up about Cornelius, there's a a bit of a universalism that can creep into this passage. Listen, it's foreign to the passage. Cornelius is not a generic worshiper of some higher power. He's not a simple worshiper, a seeker maybe, of some divine being. And he's fumbling around in the darkness for who it is. We're going to see a number of people among the Gentiles in the coming chapters who are like Cornelius. That Cornelius had been taught of the one true God as declared in the Old Testament. He had some witness from the Jews that were in their midst about him. Or perhaps even... Philip the Evangelist, who previously we were told that his, his travels took him all the way north to Caesarea. So he heard a witness about this God, and his devotion, his alms, and his prayer are directed toward that God of Israel, even though at this point, for all he knows, he is actually excluded. God indicated in the Old Testament that the nations would see Israel uh, with, his, with the law and going out with that law and bearing witness among the nations, that the nations would see Israel with their worship and the law and their joy in God, bearing witness among the nations so that the nations would turn to God. And that's what we see taking place this morning. In this vision, God is setting the stage to bring the gospel of Jesus, which is a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, to the very home of Cornelius. That's Cornelius' vision, to go and send 
for Peter, that the gospel would come to his house. Peter's vision. Let me take a moment at the outset to just say this. Listen, Peter's vision is not about bacon. Now, Peter was hungry. He went to the rooftop and he's hungry. Yes, the righteousness of Jesus completely fills the law. Yes, in this vision, God declares all foods clean. It's true. But if the extent of your excitement about this passage is that you get to have a slice of bacon on your hamburger, you're missing something about the glorious reality of God. We would do well to sit here, even if, even if, as I have done, this becomes a bit of a joke passage for me on Saturday afternoon lunch. There's something beautiful and glorious here. Peter came to a deeper understanding of the implications of this vision, and it causes he and the Gentiles and the Jews in Jerusalem all to rejoice. Acts chapter 10, verse 28, just a little while later in our passage this morning. You yourselves know how unlawful It is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see what this is about? This isn't about animals at all. Peter's vision has two implications for the coming events. The first implication does have to do with hospitality. Consider the scenario. Peter receives an invitation from a man named Cornelius who is a Gentile. The invitation is to come to Cornelius' house and to receive his hospitality. And to receive that hospitality, to accept the invitation and to go and preach the gospel in this home is also an accepting of an invitation to eat at Cornelius' table, to enjoy what is called table Fellowship. It's a matter of simple hospitality. Yeah. But this is a Gentile home. A Gentile doesn't know the first thing about how to prepare a meal that's appropriate or clean for a Jew to eat according to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Peter knows that he and his companions, when they go to Cornelius' house, they will be unclean. But what God is doing in the vision and in what takes place in this passage is he is removing barriers to the evangelization of the Gentiles. He's removing barriers to the evangelization of the Gentiles. He is making sure that news of his gospel can go to the ends of the earth. There's a second implication. The second implication The first having to do with hospitality, the second has to do with salvation. That it isn't just that the foods of the Gentiles are unclean. The issue for Peter is that the Gentiles themselves are unclean, you see. It's that they are unclean because of their association with unclean things. And they are unclean because of their association with pagan religions. These are unclean people. You would do well to not associate with them. But God is about to show Peter that he has made provision through the work of the gospel to reconcile even the Gentiles to himself. Now, 
We're going to spend a lot of time on this in the coming weeks. Luke spends a lot of time on this in recording some episodes that extend a few chapters for us now. But the glorious reality that we see taking place in our scripture this morning is God is truly breaking down through the work of Jesus and his gospel, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And for us to understand that well, what that means is what God is doing is he's breaking down the dividing wall between all of creation and himself. As we find ourselves reconciled to God, we find ourselves reconciled to one another. As Ephesians 2.14 says, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Peter serves as a witness to the gospel message of Jesus as he comes to preach the gospel to those who are far off. You see, he's bearing witness to the gospel message of Jesus Christ himself. God is bringing to pass the mystery so long hidden in the Old Testament. Again, Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I would encourage you on this. If this passage causes you to ask some questions and you're not sure how to respond, or when I tell you that the application point is rejoicing, and you're not sure how to rejoice about this, go to Ephesians chapter 2, start reading at the beginning of the chapter, and continue halfway through Ephesians chapter 3, where really it's an unpacking of the rejoicing of the implications of what we see in our passage today. I could almost go as far as to say that the one of the most practical, on-the-ground instructions for you this week is to go to Ephesians 2 and 3 in prayer and rejoicing. Just go there and practice rejoicing in the presence of God with the apostle there. Now, we've seen how the Gentiles have this vision and Peter has this vision. Now what we see is the Gentiles hear the gospel. After the reception with which Cornelius welcomes Peter, Peter is beginning to understand a deeper fulfillment of the vision he had seen. In verse 34, look at it with me. Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Let's be clear. Again, this is not universalism. It does not say that everyone is acceptable to God regardless of religion or conception of God that one might have. Cornelius had news of the one true God, and Cornelius' prayer and worship is not directed toward a vague conception of God that God is now obligated to come and clarify. What Peter is confessing here is that nationality Heritage, ethnicity are not what makes a person acceptable to God. None of these excludes a person from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. None of these things exclude us from hearing and believing. God is not a God of partiality. That's instructive to us in so many Ways, and we'll come to that. A third thing that we see in the passage is we see the gospel. 
It's an incredible presentation of the gospel. It's a, it's a presentation that's repeated a number of times in Acts. We see Peter preach it. We see Paul preach it. We see Paul repeat it in 1 Corinthians 15. We see this, this flow of the gospel being central to the way that the apostles in the church are communicating what is to be known about Jesus and reconciliation and peace. In verse 36, as we walk through this presentation, in verse 36, it says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. Peace was the announcement that the angels gave, right? At the birth of Jesus, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You mean God is bringing peace and his purposes are good toward us? Not judgment. This isn't the day of the judgment of the Lord. This is the coming of redemption. Peace, shalom, reconciliation, and rest is the good news of Jesus Christ. As we'll see, there, this peace is between both God and man. We're also told in the passage that we just read together that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's not one of the options. He's not that vague God that one might find a universal acceptance in. Jesus is Lord of all. There's one Lord. When we speak of Jesus, we aren't talking about a man who is merely good. He wasn't simply a devout Israelite who was anointed by God and had a strong teaching and a great faithfulness. Jesus is Lord of all. He is God-made flesh. This is key to an understanding of the gospel. If Peter's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and they're going to receive it for the first time, you better know this is going to be a good gospel message. In verse 37, he says, You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Jesus is the anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Jesus walks in righteousness and he heals many of oppression by the devil. We see that Jesus is not just a strong, holy, religious, wise man. He's the Lord of all. All the way from the time of the baptism of John, he begins to make this known. And it's important that Peter mentions the baptism of John. It's important because that's when the apostles began to be witnesses of the ministry of Jesus. And they begin to record what they see Jesus say, Jesus do. And now Peter is serving as a witness of what he saw and what he touched and what he heard. He's bearing witness to the Gentiles now. Look at verse 39 as Peter continues. We're all witnesses of what he did. We, uh, I'm sorry. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Friends, you can't just talk about the amazing things that Jesus did without talking about the amazing death that he died. Peter is systematically walking us through the essential historical realities of the gospel. If you have not shared about the cross of Christ, you have not yet shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is utterly essential to the proclamation of the gospel because Jesus' death was both a punishment and a public shaming. Peter says, hung him on a tree, just wood. 
He hung there in, in public punishment and shame. Jesus, the only righteous man, was hanged as though he was a criminal and shamed like he was a villain. All of this because it was his work to take the place of lawbreakers and idolaters. Jesus' death on a cross is sufficient for salvation because it deals with both our guilt and our shame. Do you see the comprehensiveness of the gospel, of the work of Jesus? Not just good teaching, not just moral platitudes, not just physical healing. But he is doing a work in his death on the cross to deal with what really ails us. Our guilt and our shame. Verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. God raised him. The resurrection is also grounded in historical reality. Note the way it puts it. It says the resurrection was on the third day. We're talking about days here. We're talking about Peter being able to remember back not that long ago to a particular Friday and a particular Sunday. And on that third day, Peter can bear witness to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is historically, physically, verifiably real with an eyewitness account. And what does Jesus do? He eats and drinks with them. I don't think we should, that should be lost on us. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is enjoying fellowship with the redeemed. Friends, the resurrected Jesus, he can handle nails in his hands. He can handle suffocation on a cross. He can handle skipping a meal or two, right? He doesn't need to eat. But what he has done is he has purchased fellowship with his people. And he sits down with them and he eats with these many witnesses. This is exactly what Jesus is telling Peter in Cornelius' household. Jesus is telling Peter that on account of the gospel, God prepared fellowship with even the Gentiles. God would eat and drink with them just as Jesus had eaten and shared in fellowship around the table with the Jewish witnesses. And that will require God's witnesses, the messengers of the gospel, to go, and they are going to have to eat and drink with the Gentiles that they might hear the good news and believe. In verse 41, we're told that they were commanded to go and preach. The witnesses are to serve as witnesses for the nations. Now, The message has a conclusion. It has an application that Peter is just starting to get to. Look at verses 42 and 43 with me. Verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God. Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. These are two important realities that are met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the judge. Friends, that's got to be a part of the gospel presentation too. 
If your gospel presentation goes something like, God loves you so very much, you are very important to him, so important he died on the cross for you so that you could live with him forever. Like, I'm just comparing that to what this says, and it sounds like another gospel. Oh, all of that is true. God did love. What is the nature of that love? How does a holy God love a fallen and rebellious people unto himself and not make a travesty of justice? The world needs justice. It needs things to be made right, not just passed over because I love you so much. We need need some things to be dealt with because we are super broken, right? And so when... Peter presents the gospel. He is sure to tell us God is just. He is so just, not that he is under judgment, but that he is the judge, the holy one who came up with the idea of a law is also the judge. The prophets have spoken about the day of the Lord for centuries, the day of the Lord. And we've made mincemeat of that idea today. Let us be clear. The prophets are, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Jesus is coming to make things right, righteous, upright, good, repaired. And he is going to put down all injustice. Jesus is coming to make all things right. And you and I know that what is wrong is us. So when I hear that the the day of the Lord is the day of the coming of the one who is to judge the living and the dead, as Peter says, I'm looking at that and saying, that's not good news for me. Because I am what is wrong with the world. Oh, I can blame lots of things on other people and they are culpable, but I am also what they can blame. Right? I am what is wrong with the world. So if Jesus is coming in judgment, he's coming because of me. This is why it's so important that we have the follow-up statement of Peter in the presentation of the gospel. The declaration that there is forgiveness of sins. It's only through faith in the righteous life, the sacrificial death, the glorious vindication and resurrection of Jesus that anyone may be forgiven with justice, because the judgment has already been made. It was made on Christ, on the cross. So that when he comes, he's like, you're right, I have a right to judge you. And I did in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I say, you're just, and you're redeemer. You're forgiver of sins in perfect righteousness. As the scriptures call Jesus, he is both the just and the justifier. The reasoning goes like this. Judgment is coming. Justice is coming. The Lord is coming. The gospel is the announcement that the Lord has accomplished forgiveness through his sacrificial death in the place of sinners. So, since the Lord is coming, the judge is coming, take refuge in him. Take refuge in the justice and grace of the judge. And Redeemer, Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For God will abundantly pardon. And now we know how he can do it. That is the content of the proclamation of the gospel by the apostle Peter to Cornelius and the Gentiles in his home. And what happens? The third thing in our passage is we see the Gentiles, they believe. They believe. We've heard Peter preach before. And when we've heard Peter preach before, we have a very good indication that Peter was not done with his sermon at the end of verse 43. He had a couple things he was about to say. He was about to call the Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. He was about to call them to be, to repent and to be baptized. And right when he's about to, to make that big gospel call, the Holy Spirit of God takes over and declares salvation of the Gentiles. You know what that is? God is declaring his sovereignty and salvation even over the Gentiles. He is putting right there in front of our eyes and Peter's eyes and the Gentiles' eyes and all who would see it, a second Pentecost to say, I am the divine spirit of God. And when I would apply my spirit for faith, there is salvation. What did Peter see? He saw Pentecost before his eyes. Now, what is God doing here? God is putting his seal of approval upon the reality of gospel proclamation among the Gentiles. He's saying, yes, that gospel will be met with my spirit's application of faith and salvation. God is making a public demonstration of his purpose to bring the gospel to the nations. Peter makes it explicit in the next chapter. In eleven seventeen. he says this, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It would appear that God is causing enemies of his cross to rejoice In his salvation. Who is I to stop that? Peter says. The Spirit's manifestation in this way becomes an outward testimony to the apostles of the inner reality of conversion. We've seen this recently in the miracles. In recent chapters, as God is establishing his church, he is repeatedly bearing this external visible witness to an inward reality of the forgiveness of sin. And now the apostles know by the visible testimony of the Holy Spirit that the conversion of the Gentiles is without distinction. This is concluded. It is final. It is sure. The Spirit has put its stamp on that doctrine. What we read here is nothing less than a Gentile Pentecost to tell us that the redeemed are among the nations. Now go evangelize, all the barriers have been removed. We learn something important here, something that's picked up for us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How can the Gentiles who did not have the law and were actually unclean according to the law receive the Spirit? How could they receive the Spirit? They couldn't clean themselves up and make themselves commendable. 
The answer is faith. Faith is the only means by which we might be united to the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's be clear. Even those Jews who did receive the law were still unclean. There's none who have kept the law of God. It's always been by faith that anyone has any hope to survive the day of the Lord's judgment. It's always been by faith. It's been in the scriptures the whole time. Notice what happens after things settle down in Cornelius' house. In verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Cornelius extends hospitality and fellowship further with Peter. and Peter accepts the invitation. And a new redeemed people fellowship in that house that day. It's glorious. It's the multifaceted jewel of the gospel. The gospel that reconciles mankind to God also works to reconcile people to one another. One commentator puts it this way, the benefits of Christ's saving work were expressed in the novelty of a table. It's why when we talk about community at Cross Point Coast, we talk about a community that, not that we create, we are not a community church, a church that has worked really hard to be a community together, to fellowship together. No, no, no. We are a community because that's what God's purchased for us. That's the work of his gospel. That was his idea. That is the, the fruit of his redeeming labor. That table that was set on that day was not Cornelius' table to set. It was set by the Holy Spirit of God. And what do we have? In chapter 11, I'll just say this, we have a church rejoicing. Much of 11 is a summary of the events that have come so far, but I just want to stress this one thing. In verse 18 of chapter 11, it says this, when they heard these things, they fell silent. As a reference. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Do you hear that? They glorified God. Friends, I would offer to you that there are two implications for us this morning. Just two things as we go. The first thing is is really the most important for us. Do you believe that salvation is by faith alone? Do you believe that salvation is by faith alone. Peter may have tried to add adherence to the law, and there were those who did try to do that. As we'll see in coming chapters, it takes the church itself a little while to to wrestle and come to terms with this reality of salvation by faith alone. But the Spirit of God is making it clear that the only means by which a person may be saved is by the grace of God through faith in that grace. The only means. Every other barrier is removed, but that one thing remains. Faith in what is heard. Do you believe in salvation by faith alone? Secondly, do you believe that God shows no partiality? This is the foundational reality of salvation by faith alone. There is nothing about a person, not you, not me, not anyone, that commends us to God. You're not saved. 
for the people in this room, because you live in America. You're not saved because you are educated or because you look a certain way or because you have exercised certain religious practices even this morning. This is not the reason why you are saved. If you are saved, if you are among the redeemed, you are saved because you heard the gospel and you received it with faith. The end. And so all here are called to hear and believe. You've heard. You've heard the gospel. You've read the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Yet before we close, just very quickly, one further consideration. Perhaps, perhaps it actually kind of was because you were born in America, for those of you who were. Perhaps it's because you were born in a place where there's a great deal of gospel witness that still remains, even to this day, even in the cultural climate that we're in, there's still the presence of a gospel witness. Perhaps it's because you were educated and you could read the Bible for yourself. You're literate. Perhaps it's because you belong to a social group or a religious practice that makes it easy for the good news to be brought to your doorstep. It's not because of these things that you're saved. But it is probably because of these things that you first heard the gospel. Is it not? Think of how I heard. And so, there is a significant implication for us in this passage. It's an implication that we would see the church come to understand and quickly begin to practice in Acts. If, if God shows no partiality, and yet the only ones who have heard of the gospel are the ones who live near us, look like us, and have similar backgrounds to us, surely that means that we have to go. And that we have to go through barriers that God has already taken down. We need to go to the nations. We need to go to the peoples. We need to go to all the families, all their people groups. If God has shown no partiality, we must be liberal in our going with the gospel. And you know what we're going to find in this world? There's much resistance. But in the gospel, in the work of the spirit to go, there's no resistance at all. That's why it is right to say that the gates of hell will not prevail against the onslaught of the church in the spread of the gospel. So I'm calling us this morning that we would go and do the easiest thing in the world for the church to go and do and die doing. That we would go and preach the gospel. Color commentary to close. However, the challenge remains in every local context. Friends, our going is also very literally right here. The challenge remains in every local context to express the reality of that fellowship by abandoning every form of prejudice and adopting habits such as sharing food and hospitality, which practically demonstrate the unity which the New Testament proclaims. Lord God, we have been redeemed into such a gloriously beautiful grace. Lord, we are in desperate need 
of your salvation that we would hear and that we would believe that your spirit would work in us the faith that you worked among the Gentiles on that day. You would work in us today. And that this morning we would come to believe deeper the glorious reality of salvation by faith alone. And Lord, I pray that that would change our meal table even this afternoon. That it would, maybe we would begin to think about how we can make other arrangements and how you might even arrange us and scatter us to the ends of the earth and to the highways and byways of this county. Show us how we can go and where your spirit has already gone. And may we find people like Cornelius that your spirit has so beautifully paved the way for us to preach. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. We trust you in the name of Jesus Christ, our judge and redeemer. Amen.